0: The road to hell is paved with good intentions. But what if those intentions were more sinister from the beginning? I'm Nikki B, a resident pop culture expert, here with Utopian history expert Danny McCarthy. We're gonna take a deeper look at the sci-fi movies that we love and see if maybe what we always thought were warnings were really blueprints. Join us as we pull at the crimson threads in our beloved cinema. Welcome to the Road to Hell.
1: If I had the money, I'd smoke two, three of these things every day. (laughs) Welcome back to the Road to Hell Film Reviews Podcast, everybody. I am Danny. He's Nikki. How you doing, brother?
0: We're doing well, and right there is exactly why this movie was on the list, because good Lord, there is some hilarious stuff said in this movie. Um, What was that in relationship to?
1: So our hero plucked the cigarette out of the hand of some attractive young lady, took a couple puffs off of it, and remarked how nice it would be if he were a rich man, perhaps he could afford to have two or maybe even three cigarettes a day. How nice that would be. Imagine such a world. Pointing out the irony, of course, (laughs) that uh, I know people that smoke two or three packs a day.
0: Absolutely. One of the other things that that does, it's... uh... It's a good example of the kind of guy that we're dealing with as our main character in this movie. If we haven't mentioned, we're talking about Soylent Green, as discussed in the last episode. An all-time classic. And what a movie this was, let me tell you.
1: <laughs> it's so good. I love it.
0: Uh, we talked a little bit before the show. So why, why for the audience, is this your fa- one of your favorite movies?
1: This is one of my favorites for a number of reasons. One... I just love the kind of gritty 70s aesthetic. This covers all different genres of movies, but if you notice, certain grease on them, and I love it. So there's that, but more, I guess, substantially, I like this movie because it's simple, it's straightforward, and it's archetypal. The plot and the problem of the movie It's not convoluted. You don't need to try and figure out what's going on or who's behind this or that. It's very clear. There is very clearly something evil going on and it's resolved at the end, or at least we know what happened at the end. And uh, it's it's kind of dreamlike in the extremity of the crime being committed. So it's got a kind of heaven and hell, good versus evil vibe to it, which I enjoy. I think that's a necessary part of a film it should be kind of dreamlike and over the top and ridiculous.
0: Well, I find it funny that you say resolved at the end, because I do not believe it ever gets resolved. I think that's part of the narrative of the story is that even if you know it, you can't fix it. Right. Because humanity's going to do what humanity does. The problem's not
1: solved, but like the mystery Because remember this is a detective story. It's a movie about a cop who's a detective and, the entire movie is him trying to solve a given mystery. And at the end of the movie, with the film's final lines, he solves the mystery. So you're right. The problem is not resolved.
0: Presumed dying breath.
1: Correct. But the mystery is resolved. For him and us. So that's what I mean by that.
0: And what is, what is our core mystery?
1: and green is made out of people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so to truncate this, our murder mystery, our really crappy guy is a, a cop, or more importantly, a detective. And he stumbles on like the rare wealthy person dead case. And he's deciding to chase down the threads on it. Well, the problem of this is, is that the person that was dead was, had a hit put out on him by the company he works for, which is the Soylent Company. Which is the singular company that makes all of the food... For everyone on the planet
1: ostensibly out of soy
0: yeah, well no it's actually not it, ostensibly it's out of plankton
1: well just the soil and green is the plankton
0: uh there's different kinds of plankton that's why they have the reds the yellows and the greens because each one is a different type of plankton that they're using from the ocean is what i got out of the movie anyways so but that's like and that's why if you looked at what was in those books was the oceanographic data where they get their so where they're getting their um what do you call it uh I mean, even modern soy lint that you can get isn't made out of uh, soy actually. Most of what it's made out of is pea protein. But he comes up with a copy of the books for like where soy lint is the basically the plankton that's made out of soy lint. The reason this whole thing is happening, why there is a monopoly on food production is because we we live in an overpopulated world that is suffering from global warming. Set in twenty twenty two. It is set in 2022, so technically this is a movie about the past, which should tell you a lot about the credibility of the people that are making these claims about (laughs) global warming and overpopulation.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: They keep keep getting the time wrong. It keeps taking longer than they think it's going to take.
1: Yeah, towards the beginning of the movie when they're kind of doing some exposition to explain why the world is the way it is to the audience— the two lead characters kind of repeat like it's the greenhouse effect that's why everything's burning up and uh it's funny the way they do it in the movie because the two characters actually like recite a line about the greenhouse effect in a way that would suggest that they've heard this repeated over and over again and they're just parroting it which to me is kind of interesting like I, I understand that that's in there because this movie is probably designed to like stoke that global warming propaganda fear i get that but it is intriguing to me that in this world the residents of new york where this takes place they've been kind of conditioned to recite like here's the reason that the world sucks it's because of this greenhouse effect this is what we were told happened but like kind of in universe in this movie you learn very quickly that There's not a member of the establishment that you can trust. So to my way of thinking, I'm like, is it really even global warming that caused their problem? Like, what really happened? Can we trust that this was actually the origin of society's breakdown? But that's kind of aside from the point, because the movie's not so much about that as it's about this mystery.
0: Well, I want to make one note, just because obviously you're not going to put a bunch of... Global warming propaganda in front of me without poking a few holes. (laughs) Most importantly, in all of their worst projections, you're not going to have a giant heat wave necessarily because it's not how global warming works. What would actually happen is all of the coldest places would raise in temperature to match the equator. The equator is not suddenly going to get hotter. It's just going to be that, that nice, even heat that they have all year the rest of the world will eventually have in the worst projections. So now we're not suddenly going to be 120 degrees on the planet. You're going to have a place called like Antarctica where you can grow food. So everything that it's saying is the worst, the possible thing that can happen is going to make it more possible to grow more food on the planet long before it makes it less likely to live.
1: Yeah. One of the things that they say over and in- over, over and over again in the movies because it's heated up so much around the world that like plants are just dying. And I was thinking, that's not really how that works.
0: Yeah, no, we would just become a tropical planet.
1: Yeah, like I think it might be better for the food supply.
0: (laughs) Now, it's also ridiculous the degree to which they have the world overpopulating because essentially in this movie, they have giant trucks that go down the street called the scoopers that literally are just dump trucks that scoop people bodies out of (laughs) living people out of the streets and into the back of the truck. So they can go to wherever processing facility they go to. And the idea that people don't question what happens to these live people that were scooping into these, but I think it's more of a matter of in this world, you're to believe that people don't want to know, which I think is a lot of how like, you would get away with what these people are getting. away with. I don't want to know. You're you're trying to keep me alive a little bit, I guess. Okay.
1: And people are like that now. I mean, not everybody, of course, but you could talk to people about the stuff that they eat or they drink and be like, do you know what's really in that? Like, do you know what your Big Mac is made out of? And they'll be like, I don't want to know. I've heard people say that before.
0: You You go back to the matrix. Ignorance is bliss.
1: Right, right. So if you add these extreme circumstances that this movie is set in, you know, like there is a climate problem and everyone's poor, everything sucks. Like people are going to be even less inclined to try and figure out what's in their food because they just need to eat and survive. You know, people don't have the luxury to consider ingredients like maybe you and I do now in that world. So,
0: so just, just, I want to make sure it's not unfortunately what they're proposing in this movie as a, Global warming, overpopulation, combination is all completely insane and impossible. But well, let's 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 go with him on this. You know, let's pretend that any of this is possible. Let's let's see how this works out.
1: So we've got this murder. This rich guy is killed, and uh, oh, this is one of those good lines that comes up in this movie. Our hero, Thorne, Detective Thorne, played by Charlton Heston, he immediately figures out that this murder was an assassination that was staged to look like a burglary. And I love the way he delivers it. He's like, punks don't cave in guys' heads with meat hooks. Assassins cave in guys' heads with meat hooks to make it look like it was punks or something like that. The way he delivered and the way he put together this whole scene and figured out that there was more here than met the eye was just really good.
0: I love the most. Because you don't actually find that out until wait. like essentially the the scene where the, he he's doing all this is him just robbing this place blind. He walks in and he is stealing everything that's not nailed down in front of the people that live in the place because he's a cop and he can't,
1: yeah. and because we live in this world of scarcity where this dude doesn't even have running water. he's never eaten strawberries or or an apple or anything in his life. So now he's in this rich dude's apartment. This guy's got running water. This guy's got a piece of beef in the in the cooler, etc. So he's just walking through stuff and shit in his pockets.
0: Well, he walks he walks out with a pillowcase full of shit out of this dude's house. And like as he's talking down to the bodyguard and like the companion of the guy who owned the place.
1: Right. The, the female companion. He's, yeah, he just takes all the stuff. And so you're thinking like, all right, this guy isn't actually doing his job. You know, he's not interested in this case at all. He just wants to take shit. So later on, when he's being asked about what happened, like, oh, he actually does have a grasp of the situation. He does have a theory developed. So he's good at his job. He's not an idiot. But it just gives you this nice picture of a character who's trying to Survive in this world of scarcity, where like he's going to do his job, but he's also going to look out for himself and kind of screw over anybody else who gets in the way. It's a very interesting dynamic, I think, within the character.
0: Well, you and I had decided it was it was interesting in that it, it's just a good example of we live in such a crappy world that this is the good guy. Like the best we can hope for is someone who's looking out for themselves, but you know, is good at their job. Yeah, he's got this,
1: he's got some kind of sense of justice, I think, where, because at one point, after he figures out that this is an assassination, him and his buddy, his old friend Saul, who's this old, like, police bookkeeper who remembers what the world was like before, they're doing research on the murder victim and find out this guy was a director of the board on the Soylent Corporation. He was involved in all these other really important things. This guy was no slouch. He was really important.
0: Personal friends with the governor.
1: Right. He was friends with the governor. Uh, the governor had been over his house recently, et cetera, et cetera. They learn all of this stuff about this guy. And where was I going with that?
0: Well, in the story, he's done done this study and he's talking to Saul about what he thinks brings Saul some books, which are like the records of the oceanographic records of what's going on with Soylent.
1: They do this research on the guy, they figure out what his deal is. Thorne understands now that this case is probably really important and relevant to stuff going on in the world. So the corporation, Soylent, gets with the police and basically shuts down the case. They're like, all right, don't look into this guy anymore. The case is closed, it was a burglary, forget about it. So the cops, Thorne's superiors, try to get him off the case And in that moment, he's like, no, I'm not closing the case. I'm going to keep on it. And they get into an argument. And so this is where we see that sense of continuance and resolve and justice is in the spirit of this thorn guy. Like, he could just say, like, I don't care. I already stole the guy's beef. Like, I don't care who killed him or what. But he still goes forward anyway.
0: Well, and it's also should be noted that the movie starts off with like what is it, the second scene? We know from the, the the get-go that, of course, the guy was assassinated. Like, there's no mystery to us that he was assassinated. Like, we we literally watched the talks of the guy who had the assassinated assassination like set in motion. So when we see that guy having a conversation with the commissioner of the police station, we know exactly where this is going. So when when he, Heston's character Thorne is told to not continue. There's no surprise to us. We know that's coming even before he does. The thing is, is, the surprise is when he reacts the way he does. Because up until this point, we've watched him kind of be a crappy guy. And you don't expect him to, in any way, put himself out there and in a position of weakness. So it's interesting that this character will choose to do something he knows puts himself in danger in a world where, you know, everything is out to get, get his.
1: Yeah, he seems at the beginning like a a very much like a it's not my problem kind of guy. You know, like he just wants to kind of get by with blinders on. But for whatever reason, something about this case hits him and he feels the need to keep digging. And that's that kind of like archetypal human thing that I think this movie captures so well.
0: And we can take this back because there's some interesting power elements in this. So at a point in the movie, he's not happy with the information he's gotten from the companion who's lived with the, the yeah. victim of the movie. And so he goes to visit her again. And when he gets there, he finds basically all of the other companions of the men in this building kind of having like a party at her place. And he walks in there clearly with the expectation that he's going to sleep with this woman. And then, you know, that just happens because basically as we gather, these women exist... Only as sexual companions the men that live in these apartments. And the girl's like, well, we're going to have a new tenant in a couple of days, and I don't know how that's going to go. I've always kind of lived here, but I don't think the next guy's going to be as good as that, the, the guy previously. In the same scene, you also have like the, the guy who runs this hotel or apartment building come up and start beating the shit out of all these girls for not acting appropriately as he sees fit. So essentially, you get the impression, oh, this is the the pimp of this particular building. And once again, kind of in a in-character, out-of-character, Heston's character comes out from having gotten with the, the other girl, and he's like half-dressed, and he starts dressing down the owner of this apartment building for being a piece of shit, for treating his women like this. And... While he's doing it, he's still playing like the "I'm a cop, you're you're not a cop, so you're gonna do what I say, otherwise shit's gonna get real bad for you." While he's protecting these women, and and, and, and what's ridiculous because even as it's going on, the one girl he slept with who used to be the companion to the victim. She, you know, he's not actually that bad. There's a lot worse out there that we could have.
1: Right, but still thorns instinct is to protect the ladies and that was another one of those human moments where he i love the way it was done too because he's basically threatening to kill this guy but not in so many words you know he's like he's like snapping his gun holster onto his belt as he's saying like we don't have a problem here do we charlie you know it's, it's great
0: what's really interesting is this the scene takes place and this is after he's visited the bodyguard's home with his quite foxy companion that he has and it's very clear that in this situation, he clearly doesn't have a natural respect for the women. Like, he came to this apartment knowing he was going to take advantage of this girl. Because that's just what, you, you know, oh, that's what you're going to do. Also, when he's going through the bodyguard's apartment earlier, they make a claim where she's excited to have kind of gotten off from the fact that she had contraband in the house. And she's you know playing, well, well, if, you know, when you were coming, I would have offered you more. And he's like, if I'd have had time, I'd have taken it. Yeah. <laughs> like, basically, I if, if I wanted it and I had the time, I was going to take it anyway. So you can offer or not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a wild part of this movie. <laughs> it's the sexuality of it is. It's really intense and aggressive in that way. Where, like, this dude, our hero, I mean, there's, like, a line that he's walking very rapey. <laughs> you
0: know? Oh, no. I mean... In in modern art, the modern situation, without question, it's rape. Like he's walking in there, he's going to take it, and they're just going to deal with it or not because he's law. But in the same vein, like this is the same guy who's like he's protecting these women, even though they we, we clearly don't register as like just a human being in his his world. There's something different. They're they're less than
1: well, and it kind of raises this question of how gender roles and sexual differences oscillate in extremity based on how affluent a society is. So basically the idea would be that as a society gets more comfortable and there are more luxuries and amenities for people, then you notice the gap between genders closes and there's more room for like women to be treated as equals and respected and stuff, but in a more violent or rough around the edges kind of society. You start to see like men behaving more like brutes and women kind of being forced to kowtow to that. It's, I'm not sure that that's actually true, like as a rule,
0: but- What I think you see naked power is that when when the world clearly operates only from, like the only thing that matters is power, you're going to see the people with the most naked power on top taking advantage of that.
1: And it's generally going to be dudes. And so women are kind of forced into this supplicant role. And you see that in this movie, like society has degraded to a point where whatever progress has been made on the, the gender or sex front that's gone now because it's law of the jungle again. So you see like these very traditional brutish relationships between men and women resurface, which I think is interesting because it kind of speaks to the fragility of so-called progress, where we like to think that you know we've come such a long way socially in how we view women in context of men or whatever, but all of those progresses are dependent upon our material situation. And were our material situation to change substantially, we could theoretically revert back to a time where women were viewed as not equal.
0: Does that make sense? Jack Spierko recently had an episode, it's something I've heard him say before, but he, in relationship to what we're talking about specifically, and it's about what will you do to survive? It's like you, the worst civilizations that you'll ever find, and the places that you you just you don't feel safe in. Are places without food security because if you're no matter who you are, how good a person you are, or whatever your moral like situation is, if the choice is. Kill the guy next to you who has something and take his food to feed your children or watch your children starve. You're going to, <laughs> if, if you say you're not, you're either lying or a terrible father. You're going to do what is necessary to keep your children alive. And that to me is is exemplifying what you're talking about. It's this idea that, yeah, it's it's all, all fun and games when everybody has provided for it. But the minute that part of society breaks down, yeah, we're all just we're all just waiting for that next meal to be the one that means I have to kill the guy next to me to take it.
1: It's all contingent on material luxuries. Uh, everything that we like to tout as the, the fruits of civilization and progress, uh, they really do depend upon technological and material conditions that for most of us are completely out of our control. You know, my power supply that's Keeping the lights in this computer on and everything. I don't have anything to do with that. Basic. I mean, I, I sign a check every month and power is delivered to my house. But I have no part in the process of actually securing that power. My food supply, like, I don't raise my own meat. You know, I get it from someone who does. And, like, I don't just buy it at the grocery store. Like, there is a, I'm closer to the process than many people are as far as where my food comes from but I'm not sufficient in it by any stretch of the imagination. So were these systems to break down. There's nothing I can do about it because I'm not involved in the process anyway. So I would just have to make do. And um, most people, I think, would be in the same situation. So we like to pat ourselves on the back for being these progressive, enlightened, modern people, but that's an accident. It's an accident of our material conditions. And this movie demonstrates that nicely. And yet, while this may sound like I'm kind of dumping all over human progress and human morality. I'm not. I just think that we would kind of we would do well to remember where our morals come from and what is underlying them. But in this movie, even when everything has fallen apart, you do see the better aspects of human nature shine through, like when Thorne is defending the ladies or when he's standing up to his boss saying I'm going to keep digging. But perhaps most of all there are these little moments in this movie where you just kind of get a slice of those tiny elements of humans that make us human and make us interesting. So there's a scene after Thorne robs the victim's house, uh, he's got a bunch of food and he comes home and he lives with Saul, the old police bookkeeper. And, uh, he's like showing him all this food that he stole from the guy's house. And Saul is saying like, Oh, this here's what this is. Here's what that is. And, uh, Saul prepares this dinner and it's a lovely scene. They don't talk. There's like nice classical music playing in the background and you just watch Saul eat what he cooked and then you juxtapose to Thorn, like looking at an apple and like not knowing quite what to do with it and mimicking Saul's motions when he wipes it on his shirt and he takes a bite out of it and he eats the whole thing. He eats the core because he doesn't know what he's doing. It's just a very quaint human thing where you see how people interact and how this guy is kind of introduced to the old world before everything fell apart. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I just find it really nice. I find it lovely, those interactions.
0: Well, but there's also like a it's interesting, but there's also like a context to it in that I think Saul is expecting him to be a little bit more appreciative and excited about the things like that he's finally getting a chance to experience. But he kind of isn't. Like he's he's like, Yeah it's it's good, but you know, whatever. He's he's kind of nonplussed about the whole situation, which to me seems very odd. If all you've ever eaten is plankton your whole life, eating an apple is going to blow your fucking mind. Right,
1: yeah. I mean, he does say he's like, I've never eaten like that before. He He was happy with it, but you're right. There was kind of like an underwhelmed aspect to it. But I interpreted that as not a problem with the food. I interpreted that as him internalizing the depressing fact that like I'll probably never eat like this again. Like this is what it used to be like and I got a taste of it and now I have to know what the good thing is and go back to eating the shitty thing for the rest of my life. You know, it's it's sad. It's good but it's sad when you get to enjoy it.
0: Yeah, no no, I can I can see that. So, essentially like at a certain point the movie just becomes him running away from the people that are trying to kill him that were sent by the Soylent Company. The movie ends with him like discovering in the factory that they are in fact dumping bodies and that's what Soylent is made out of. And so he tries to escape to tell somebody. Essentially, I think he's trying to get back to the priest that he doesn't know has already been murdered.
1: He wants to get to the exchange, which is so Saul, the bookie, he's got this like small group of former judges and lawyers and stuff who are posted up, I guess, at like the library someplace with a lot of books and it's these old people who just sit there and read and try and collate data that's called the exchange and saul goes to them with the oceanographic texts that thorn stole from the victim's house that uh, it's a survey regarding all the plankton and stuff that the soylent product is ostensibly made out of um he brings it to them and then together they all go through it and realize oh shit the report reveals that there's not enough plankton to make Soylent. Like, it we can't be done. So they, by researching this, prove that Soylent Green is made out of people. But they don't, we, the audience, don't hear that. We just hear them saying, like, holy shit, something, we just proved something nuts. We've got to figure out how to prove this. So then Saul, he goes back to his apartment, and he's miserable having just found out what he found out. So Throughout the movie, he's been saying, I want to go home. I want to go home. One day I'm going to go home. And you don't really know what that is until finally he says, all right, I'm going home after this terrible news is revealed to him. Going home means he goes to this facility that's got air conditioning and people in white robes hold the door open for you. And they ask you your favorite color and they're all very nice to you. And what it is, is it's this big complex where people voluntarily come in and kill themselves. It's an assisted suicide facility where they fill a room with the light of your favorite color. They play your favorite kind of music and you lie on a bed and you drink a potion like Socrates did. And on this gigantic like IMAX screen, they play nature scenes from the old world. And you just watch beautiful scenes of earth as your favorite music plays as you slowly fade away and die. So that's what Saul is doing. He leaves a note for Thorn. Thorn gets the note just in time. He races to the place to see Saul for one last time, and in that moment, Thorn is able to like by strong-arming the guy who runs the place, he's able to see Saul and hear him and talk to him while he's in this suicide chamber, which means that Thorn is now seeing video footage of the world that Saul has been telling him about. But he never got to see and that's this is one of the best scenes in the movie dude the music is tremendous it's, uh, I think it's called Morning Mood by Grieg the piece it's so good and you're just waterfalls and flowers and deer running around and so on and, so on and, so
0: on. Well, and I'm assuming it's it's designed to be the counterpunch to the, the opening credits of the movie which is kind of the same but what you're watching it and watching it deteriorate to, to the point where, like, we find ourselves in the very beginning. But, like, it's it, it was a very old-timey music. Like, the scenes are beautiful. And, like, look like, it looked like they honestly took, like, actual photos from different time periods to make the opening sequence. But, but back to <laughs> the, the narrative.
1: Right. So in this scene, we're just seeing the most beautiful pictures of nature. And Saul is, like, fading out. And he's saying, do you see it? Can you see it? Was I right? You know referring to how beautiful the world used to be and thorn is crying and he's like yes how could i have ever imagined that this was the world like it's just such a frigging great scene dude i love it it it's so good and um the acting is wonderful and so then as this is going on saul starts kind of going like hey you know there's information about soylent before i go and of course the machinery that's letting them communicate stops working so Thorne doesn't hear the thing, the piece of information. He just hears Saul say, you've got to prove it, you've got to prove it, and then he dies. And so then these the people come back in and they remove his body from the room. And Thorne, being this kind of precocious digger for information, for whatever reason, he's animated now by this need to figure out what's going on. He sneaks out of the facility and follows the people and sees that they're loading Bodies from this suicide place into these trucks. So he hops on one of the trucks, and it takes them. It takes him to this disposal facility, and this is where he finds out that Soylent Green is made out of people. So, like Saul's body was taken right after he died to a food processing facility and converted into crackers. <laughs> like, <coughs> so that's the reveal. That's what happens, and this is how he finds out. Uh, That Soylent Green is made out of Uh, people—very disturbing for him, I imagine. So he's got to escape the facility. Of course, people see him there, and he fights his way out. And so, all of this is to say, he's got to get back to the exchange and tell them, "Look, you Soylent Green is made out of people. I've seen it, and um, now we have to do something about it." But these are the people that have the documents, the actual proof that you would use in court. Thorn is a witness to the process and could like theoretically lead people yes, there. it's,
0: it's corroboration.
1: Horrible. Exactly. And we don't know what happens. The movie ends with Thorne getting in this shootout with a company hitman in a friggin like church. It's it's so good.
0: The church is interesting because that's also in the in his last days the rich guy wanted to go to confession and And you can see, like, how messed up the preacher is when they get there, and he tries to play it off like he's always just tired. But you can tell that it's from the gravity of what he was told in Confession by this character. And because the cop won't let it go, the priest is killed, so he can't tell anyone.
1: So the rich man had been to Confession. Uh, before he died, which struck everybody as weird. I also like that when they find out he went to church, everybody was like, oh, what? Who goes to church? Like, Thorne was like, what the hell? (laughs) Like, who goes to church? That's weird. It's weird that people would go to church.
0: Well, more importantly, rich people don't go to church.
1: Right. Rich people don't go to church. Poor people, sure. Poor people live in the church. But it was it struck everybody as strange. This guy who had, like, you know, beef and prostitutes why would he go to church? I think at one point Thorne says, like, if I were that guy, you wouldn't catch me in church. You know, uh, it's a it's a point of suspicion. So the priest is the first person we are introduced to, aside from the victim, who knows the secret that Soylent Green is people. But being a priest, he can't reveal what was confessed to him. Uh, but when Thorne meets with him, this guy's just like walking around with wide eyes and kind of muttering to himself. And at one point he does say like, Jesus Christ, I can't handle this information. And Thorne's like, what? And then the guy just like collapses onto the stairs and it's just like, "Ah, I can't. So it's really bad, whatever it is. (laughs) But he winds up, he winds up getting killed. Uh, So this is where the movie ends in the church where poor people are just living. So as the shootout is going on, Thorne and the hitman are stumbling over sleeping homeless people. And a a lot of the homeless people get shot by the assassin, you know, because he's just trying to kill Thorne. So he winds up catching some of these poor bastards, you know.
0: Well, there's even a certain degree to which Thorne is using them as shields. Once again, Thorne is not a hero. (laughs) Not in the classical sense. No,
1: no. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you're right. He's definitely using them as cover. But in the end, he gets shot. It's not clear if it's fatal. We don't know if Thorne is going to die, but he falls down. He gets, he does get the assassin. The assassin's killed. Backup shows up. The rest of the cops show up. And Thorne tells his boss Soylent Green is made out of people. You got to tell them. You got to tell the people. You got to get out there. You got to show them Soylent Green is people. And the movie ends. And you don't know.
0: You say, I, that's the thing. You say you don't know, but the thing is, is that we already know that the Soylent Corporation controls every industry. We know that his boss is not not one to not be bought off. So, I mean, from where we're at, I'm assuming that that whatever the ambulance they put him into is going to drop him directly off the Soylent factory. Maybe put a bullet in his head on the way, and that the cop is going to enjoy a nice paycheck and some beef himself, and. Move along with life, exactly as it's always been.
1: Yeah, the only hope, I guess, would be that the information that Silent Green is people would be so disturbing to that guy hacker. I think his name is Hatcher, the uh, the boss cop. He would be so disturbed by that revelation that he could that he would have to like feel compelled to do something about it. That's the only
0: hope. And the thing is, at no point in that conversation. Honestly, did it sound like he was surprised by the information? Yeah,
1: it sounded like he was entertaining the ramblings of a madman. He's like, "All right, little buddy.
0: All right, buddy. Yes." Either he doesn't believe him, or he already knew and didn't care.
1: So it doesn't look very good for humanity.
0: <laughs> yeah, not at all. So all that out of the way, what are the uh, the docs that uh, this kind of brings to mind, or that you know you think are good companions to this piece?
1: So. The reason we decided to do this movie was because the last one we did, Children of Men, was kind of about a similar subject in a way. It was about population and birth and whether or not there are too many people.
0: There was, there's only one child I think you see in this movie. And it's the child is on a leash, strapped to his dead mother, lying at the curb. And Charlton Heston's <laughs> character unstraps the kid from its mom, drags it into the church to give it to the priest. It's the only kid I remember seeing in the movie.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, she... Dude, that's another good scene. You just see this dead lady lying there, and you're like, what the hell? And he traces the leash off of her hand, and then there's just this kid crying, mama, mama, damn, that's heavy. (laughs) And he just completely unfazed, grabs him, takes him in. Like, it's a matter of course. He's probably done it before. But um, the the documents and stuff, the historical artifacts that come to mind are really pretty much the same ones as last time. The, the theory that human population is unsustainable goes back to Thomas Malthus, as we talked about last time. And, you know, that theory is basically that if the human population continues to grow as it does, we won't be able to keep up resource production in order to feed everybody. So what you'll get is just this ever-increasing, ever-expanding, poor population, which is going to lead to desperate people doing desperate things, and all of society is going to collapse because that's what happened. And that's this movie is a Malthusian scenario. Society has collapsed because there are too many people, and so now we're seeing that, what do you get? You get desperate people in the streets, starving and smashing windows, and you get a very like loosely... Held together, like kind of held together with duct tape and bubble gum, but very authoritarian government that remains as well. Kind of like in Children of Men, you know, the government was by no means this combine of competence, competence, but it was draconian nonetheless. You know, uh, it's kind of like a second world dictatorship, and that's that. That's the impression of this government in this movie.
0: So, what's really interesting with the whole mouthless concept is that and Elon Musk would be someone who will agree with us, is that the real issue that we have as people is our economic system, and the fact that what really happens is that at a certain point of wealth, human beings stop procreating. like it, we, 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 Because we have enough leisure time that we don't have to, or because death isn't such a, an imminent threat to us, we don't need to have 10 kids to you know, take over our family plot and keep us alive in the future. Ultimately, what history has taught us is that we'll, we have a difficulty of replacing ourselves in first world nations. The only nations that create more population are like nations that people struggle to live in the first place. Because having four kids is the only way to guarantee that you have a next generation. Whereas, you know, you and me, we, we've each got one kid. <laughs> we we don't even have replace, replacement population.
1: Yeah, yeah. People will... Uh people wait in our culture even like if they do want to have kids they're like well you know i'm gonna wait till i'm 34 because i really want to enjoy my 20s and i want to focus on my career and blah 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 you're like that's nice uh there are places in this world where people are having or cranking out babies at 15 you know and that's kind of the only option <laughs> uh we don't have to do that so you're right we you know and affluent cultures we tend to put off having children and then the longer you wait the less likely you are to succeed and the less likely you are to have an abundance of children et cetera. then of course there's the whole environmental factor where we our testosterone levels have been plummeting like fertility is under chemical assault basically by everything we consume so there's that whole conversation as well so right we're, we're dealing with a a depopulation problem not an overpopulation problem And um, I think the overpopulation problem, as it's framed by Malthus and as it's framed in this movie, kind of necessitates, I think, the corporation's argument for making Soylent Green out of people. You know, when you consider the Malthusian narrative and when you consider the idea that if you accept that overpopulation is a thing, it makes you wonder when watching this movie, according to that narrative, is the Soylent Corporation the good guy? Because they're the only ones... Who have apparently come up with a sustainable solution to overpopulation. It's human composting. It's recycling. It's sustainable, right? So when you think about how today you hear about, you know, people eating the bugs and human composting in California and all of this stuff, and you think, well, geez, that's kind of sinister. A lot of these environmental measures are indeed put forward because it's said that they will help the environment. Why should we bury human dead? Why should we put the corpse away and keep it out of the recycling process? If there are too many of us, our only option is to integrate human compost into the food supply, right? From an environmental point of view, if you accept certain Malthusian premises, it actually kind of makes sense. So if you're a Malthusian and you watch this movie, you might be on the side of Soylent, right?
0: Well, here's the thing. I mean, all of this is thinly veiled propaganda in my eyes to further degradate what human beings are on the planet. One of the things that I've always respected about the Christian culture is that they tend to be very, it's part of their beliefs that human beings are different and that we are we are capable of being stewards for what's around us. The more you hack at the idea that human beings are capable of being stewards and that we're just animals ourselves, The less value you place on human beings in the first place. And that's what all of the Smalthusian ideas and, frankly, the way that we treat humanity currently is based on. It's based on this idea that we don't think there's anything special or inherently useful or noble about humanity. We're just another animal. And, you know, we're an animal that is outpacing its ability to control itself in the environment. So we just need to be murdered off like any unstable population in nature. And I don't think at any point is that true. (laughs) Like we're not just any other animal.
1: Yeah. There are.
0: That only, that only works if we, if we live up to the best parts of our ability to be able to take care of the world around us actively. So like when you're looking at these people, they're actively trying to do things that make us destroy the world around us. To make us into the worst thing that we, could put, we can live up to being, which makes more reason to undo us in the grand scheme of things. It's very frustrating to watch happen. Of
1: course, and as we've said before in private and probably on the show too, you know, the environmentalism as a broad general term without any political converse, uh, connotations is something that you and I could both get behind. Like, Of course, the environment is obviously important, and... I do believe that we are part of a larger system. Humans don't exist in a vacuum. We're dependent on the environment, and to an extent, environment is dependent on us insofar as an environment is dependent on those species which occupy it. So we do have uh, an inherent give and take stewardship relationship with our environment. And that fundamental truth, I think, resonates with people at a very deep level. So when a political movement take brands itself as we're the environmental people. We're the ones who care. They wind up capturing that innate energy, that innate desire for us to care for our environment and then steer it very manipulatively in a way that will suit their political ends while capturing our energy, our desire to um, take care of the environment, but not actually doing so, right? You can capture um, the momentum of a human emotion and steer it in a way that suits your ends.
0: As a for instance... Like, th- there is a danger of not being able to meet our food needs that I think we face, that this movie does kind of correctly point out. The problem is, is the, the idea behind this is to chase something that can't be affected by human beings, can't be undone by human beings, and largely is not going to cause the problems that they believe it's going to cra- cause. The idea that the air is the problem is completely ludicrous. Now, 2,000 years of our farming techniques... And KFOs and the way that we do farm absolutely is going to ca- cause fallow lands like it's already done places throughout history. And there's no amount of nitrogen that we can dump into the soil after a certain place. See, sure, our food grows big, but if you look at the nutritional content of it, it's certainly not there in most cases, unless you're growing your own, amending your own soil. The bottom line is, is we're, causing a th- we're causing our food to be less nutritious, and eventually it's not going to have any nutrition in it at all. And that is a real concern. That is a genuine environmental concern that could create a world like Soylent Projects, but that's not the air and global warming that's causing that. It's something, a problem that most people don't even realize exists, which is that we're depleting our soil.
1: And thereby depleting our internal biome as well. You know, if if your external environment is not rich with nutrients, your internal environment will not be either. So it's an environmental problem that's far more holistic, I guess, than the most climate alarmist people at the U.N. King Charles would like you to think, you know, they want to kind of scapegoat this one factor, carbon, uh, carbon dioxide.
0: Well, because it gives them a good way to control things. We can make policies around right. that.
1: Well, and when you have one scapegoat, it becomes far easier to animate public the public to act right if you explain like look this is actually a very complicated problem that's going to require multifaceted approaches uh, that we're all going to have to take action in some regard like it does come down to whether or not you grow your own food it's it's a big deep problem that has many tendrils that span out and touch every aspect of our lives well you can't use that that can't be your political platform because everyone's going to say well pfft, all right, well, it's hopeless then. I'm not doing that. But if you can just say like, look, it's this one thing. And if we do X, Y, and Z and take care of this one thing, then by God, we'll be good. But if we don't do that one thing, then everything's going to be underwater in 10 years. That's how you make a political message. It's reductive.
0: <laughs> Anything else we got we get to get out on this one? Like I said, it's, it's a pretty simple concept. But it was a, definitely an interesting movie. I'm, I'm glad I got a chance to finally watch this. I don't know how, how I've missed it over the years and I haven't had a chance to get to it but
1: it's so good. Everybody should watch it. I love it. This movie gets me in the gut every time. I don't know It's just
0: Well and more what's more important to me is it's actually not a very long movie. it's 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 not a bad movie. It's like gets to the point I think it's like an hour and 38 minutes. Yeah, it's nice and tight. so it's not even like a two hour movie. I mean, some of the sci-fi movies I watched are two, two and a half, three hours. So being able to get done like a normal movie time was pretty pretty dope.
1: Yeah, it's compelling. and I get just those human moments. I love the interactions between Thorne and Saul. It's just glorious. they're little back and forth quips, you know Saul, Saul's calling him a schmuck and just it's just great. Those little things that add humanity. To this very dismal world, and then of course, as I say, the Saul's death scene is like one of the greatest scenes in film, as far as I'm concerned. It's beautiful, so everyone should watch it.
0: That they should. Uh, do we have anything in mind for next week or next uh, month? What we're planning on doing or watching? I think I may have had, I may have decided it when we were talking about this one in the beginning.
1: Okay, okay. Gamer.
0: I'm thinking gamer might be the the one we move to next because it's going to be dealing with some issues that we are actually dealing with in society currently. And you start looking at AI and the potential for the future. And so there's going to be some real implications for some of the stuff that, that, uh, that movie brings up.
1: All right, let's do it, man.
0: Now, full disclosure, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, it, it is not a very popular movie, but it is super, super fun for me.
1: Okay. Well then let's
0: do it. Okay. So June's, June's movie is gamer. All right. Well, folks, Thank you so much for joining us again this month. So we look at the the eyes behind what's going on with the science fiction. You know, these people trying to warn us of the future, or are they, uh, you know, just showing us what we can expect, one way or the other? I don't know. But one thing you can be sure about is keep one eye on the screen and the other over your shoulder. Please. Adios. Do you have a small business or side hustle looking to start one? One of the biggest reasons new businesses fail or never get off the ground at all is not understanding marketing as part of the process. You might have the best product in the world, but if you don't understand how to get traffic and convert it, it'll be all for nothing. If you'd like to avoid rookie mistakes and put your best foot forward, go to nickypcopywriter.com slash road to hell and let me help.